We are most grateful for your divine providence, ruling great and small. Nothing, Lord, escapes your notice because everything that comes to pass in our lives, you have preordained. And for your people, Lord, we know by the promise of your word, it is always for our good that we may be more shaped and conformed into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for the steps of each one you've established here tonight. Recognizing and affirming, even in song, your divine providence, Lord, we know that none of us are here by chance. None of us are here by accident. None of us are here by blind fate. But we are here, Lord, because you have brought us here. And so we look to you with a great and holy anticipation for what you have prepared for the feeding and the nourishing of our souls this evening by the truth of your holy word. But with that, Lord, we do pray in great earnest that the Holy Spirit would accompany the teaching of your word tonight and thus capture our hearts and settle our affections entirely, Lord, upon you. We pray that you would sanctify us by your word of truth, even this night, for the sake of Christ, in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to begin reading at verse 14 to verse 16. Just three verses. 14 through 16 of Proverbs chapter 8 as we consider tonight the subject God's wisdom to govern. God's wisdom to govern. And this is a most timely teaching. Beginning at verse 14 of Proverbs chapter 8. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living, eternal God. We return this evening to our continued study in the book of Proverbs, where we're going to turn our attention to Proverbs chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. In this passage, we're informed at how it is the wisdom of God which enables world rulers to govern nations justly. Whether such rulers are redeemed or not isn't the point. Since God has sovereignly placed them and appointed them to be where they are as a ruling power to maintain law and order, just read Romans 13 for that reference, then by God's common grace, such rulers will be afforded the wisdom to govern justly. This is the primary point 
of Proverbs 8, 14 through 16. So when we do see earthly rulers governing justly, then we know that God's common grace is at work despite the fact that such a king, prince, or president even knows Christ as their personal Savior. If they are maintaining law and order over a nation and thereby fulfilling what God put them there to do, then we need to recognize this for what it is. It is God overruling everything in this earthly ruler that would oppose his purpose for government to do what is right. This is why Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 assures us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he will. There's no earthly authority, no matter how far their rule reaches men, who is exempt from God's own rule, which is infinitely higher. In fact, with categorical ease, God can and does move earthly rulers to do whatever he decrees. In other words, like the analogy given in this proverb, God can move the king's heart to do his people good as freely as a farmer can dig a channel that is a watercourse to irrigate his fields and make his crops grow. This explains why Pharaoh favored Joseph and his family or why Artaxerxes financed the building of the second temple for the returning Jewish exiles and later permitted Nehemiah, his own cupbearer, to return as well to oversee the building project. And during the Protestant Reformation and its impact on England specifically, this is, this, this is why an unswerving Catholic king, namely Henry VIII, unwittingly furthered the Reformation he was so against by issuing a decree that a copy of the Bible in Latin and in English had to be placed by every parson in the choir area of every church for every man that will to look and read thereon. Now think about the wonder of this particular action, okay? Henry VIII ordered the execution of William Tyndale for translating the Bible into English to then order only two years after Tyndale's death English Bibles to be displayed in every local church for the common Englishman to read. It makes no human sense. And yet, it makes perfect sense when we understand that God turns the hearts of kings wherever he wills them to go. So when we think about the place of earthly rulers and what is in their power and appointment to do as governing authorities, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 14 through 16 reminds us that the wisdom these rulers need to rule can only come from God who has put those rulers in the position they hold. But what qualities does the wisdom of God afford earthly rulers? In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 14, we read of four specific qualities provided by God's wisdom for human government. First, there is counsel. There is counsel. In personified language, God's wisdom says, I have counsel. By the term counsel is understood quite literally to be political and military advice given to a king. But it is advice not to be debated, but a plan to be heeded by the one in charge. 
This same word and its application can be seen in Jethro's advisory plan to Moses in Exodus 18, verse 19, where he declares to Israel's leader, Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. We see this same word employed by the prophet Nathan in 1 Kings 1 and verse 12 when he sent a message to King David by way of Bathsheba. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life. And then, in Proverbs 20 and verse 18, we see this word again, but couched in a divine principle for kingly rule. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance wage war. What is so significant about the teaching of Proverbs 20 and verse 18 is that it's all about the king being teachable. The future of a nation does not rest on the genius of one man. Rather, what God's wisdom affords earthly rulers is a circle of sensible counselors who can keep the king or prince or president in check before he runs off in his own pride and ends up bringing disaster on both himself and the nation as a whole. This is why Proverbs 11:14 has as much to say to governing authorities as it does to anyone else. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So then when it comes to the wisdom God gives earthly rulers, how critical is it that the first mentioned grace of this wisdom is taking consultation with people wiser and more experienced than one's self. The king must hear more than just the voice in his own head. Second, there is sound wisdom. There is sound wisdom. Again, in verse 14, God's wisdom says, I have sound wisdom. The term sound wisdom is better translated as resourcefulness. Resourcefulness. One writer noted of this word that it has to do with clear, proficient thinking in the exercise of power in practical operations as distinct from thinking as an intellectual act. In other words, it's having the wherewithal in knowing how to get out of a jam. It's that quality of God-given wisdom which enables leaders to know how to escape a fix. This is why we see this same word employed in Job 6 and verse 13 as help. Help. Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? It should go without saying that this is a quality highly needed in earthly rulers, whether they are political or military. Nations of a fallen world will be fraught with problems which demand from its leaders that keen ability to see the big picture and accurately troubleshoot both the source and solution to the immediate problem. We see this kind of God-given wisdom bestowed on George Washington. When, on December 25th, 1776, Washington and the Continental Army crossed the Delaware River into New Jersey in a surprise attack on a British army of Hessian soldiers in the town of Trenton. At this point in the war, the American forces were losing on all sides. The British had pushed them all the way back from New York to Pennsylvania, 
with many of Washington's soldiers badly injured, others deserting, and the morale of the army at an all-time low. Moreover, the Continental Congress had fled Philadelphia, while more of the local citizens were signing the British proclamation with two members of the Congress who had defected to the side of the enemy. By all reasonable signs, the war was over and the Americans had lost. How then was Washington to lead his troops to victory when the odds were stacked against them at every turn? Knowing that an open general attack against the British would be fatal to his army, Washington began gathering intelligence for a sneak attack under the cover of night. The planning for this preceded several days, till at last, on Christmas night, Washington led his army across the Delaware River facing a northeast storm and a swollen river full of broken sheets of ice. Several hours later, they arrived at their destination of Trenton, New Jersey in the thick of driving snow. And in a matter of 45 minutes, the Continental Army overwhelmed the Hessian mercenaries, securing a definitive victory that sobered the British with fear and fortified the American cause that all was not lost. But it was the God-given wisdom in George Washington which enabled this man to see the most strategic way to bring the American cause off the ropes and back in the fight to persevere for nearly seven more years in securing American independence. Needless to say, this quality of God's wisdom described as resourcefulness is highly needed for the leaders of nations. Third, there is insight. Insight. Reading again Proverbs 8 and verse 14. Wisdom says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. The word insight can be translated as understanding, prudence, or intelligence. It is the conceptual interpretive activity of thought operating in the field of meaning, aiming at perception and comprehension. In other words, this dynamic of God's wisdom called insight enables one to have the competent skill to size up a situation with discernment as to how it needs to be navigated in the right moral direction. What's more is that in Proverbs we're told that those who walk in this quality of wisdom show a cool spirit in circumstances where they could lose their cool. Proverbs 14.29 tells us that they are slow to anger and thus patient when circumstances would tempt them to blow up. Furthermore, they know how to hold their tongues. They can also skillfully draw out the inaccessible thoughts of others by communicating the right words at the right time. Moreover, by such wise insight, they walk straight as opposed to fools who walk with no moral sense at all. Is this a quality needed in leaders of nations? The question answers itself. Where such insight like this is lacking in earthly rulers, their leadership has no moral compass, and thus they end up driving their country into a moral tailspin. Historically, it's the difference between a Winston Churchill and an Adolf 
Hitler. Finally, there is strength. There is strength. This word translated strength comes from a Hebrew term which means both literally and figuratively force. It can therefore be understood by implication as valor or victory. One Old Testament scholar paraphrases it as heroic strength. Heroic strength. It is the picture of a brave leader who shows courageous capability confronting redoubtable adversaries. Seeing this term in full application, for wisdom to be worth its salt, one must have not only a strategy for success, but also the strength to carry it out and not to flinch in the face of opposition. One of the best modern examples of this quality and God-given wisdom for earthly rulers is what we see in the aforementioned Winston Churchill, who, when faced with the inevitable invasion of Nazi Germany upon Great Britain in 1940 at the beginning of World War II, Churchill stood before the House of Commons of the UK Parliament on June the 4th as Great Britain's newly elected Prime Minister to deliver what became the battle cry for Britain against whatever Hitler had devised to throw at them. In the most stirring section of Churchill's speech, Britain's Prime Minister declared with dogged determination and a courageous resolve. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the costs may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I had to say that and receive pronunciation because I can hear his voice. And if, which I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to, to the rescue and the liberation of the old. It is said that immediately after giving the speech, Churchill muttered to a colleague, and we'll fight them with the butt ends of broken beer bottles because that's bloody well all we've got. <laughs> the point of this example in Winston Churchill is to see a demonstration of the kind of manly courage God's wisdom bestows on governing authorities, which is especially needed in times of war. In fact, since it is God's purpose for earthly governments to wield the sword both as an act of justice on civil crime as well as a means of defending its nation against foreign invaders, and again, that is referenced in Romans 13, 1-4, then it should not surprise us that among the qualities of divine wisdom for princes, presidents, and prime ministers would be his heroic strength. As one writer said, just because wisdom encourages humility and opposes pride, 
doesn't mean that the wise are wimps. Well, in closing this study, let me leave you with three principal lessons for us as takeaways from what we have learned tonight in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. Lesson number one. Since it is God who appoints those that will rule nations, remember Daniel 2.21, God raises up kings and sets them down, then we, God's people, must pray for the Lord to provide leaders who will govern justly. Now, obviously, that's a no-brainer. But how much do we pray? How earnest are we? to petition the Lord, especially at such a time and season in our own nation when men and women are being selected for the U.S. Senate or the Congress, but most importantly, for the office of president. We need to remember God appoints who will take that seat. He appoints. He raises up kings. He sets them down. And so believing that our God is so indeed sovereign, then we pray in earnest. We pray in earnest as God's people. Lord, have mercy on us as a nation that you would give us wise, earthly rulers. And of course, as we know right now, in our present context, the church of Jesus Christ should be fasting and praying for such a need in this moment of time. Lesson number two. Since it is by God's common grace that wisdom is afforded to earthly rulers, then we must pray for our leaders in government that the Lord will mercifully bestow his wisdom on them rather than withholding it in judgment. And at that, at that moment right there, many of you are probably thinking, well, I think the Lord is withholding. We are under judgment. Indeed, it does appear that way, doesn't it? It really does. But nevertheless, again, this is why we pray. This is why we cry out to God. Lord, have mercy upon us. And at this hour, we need to be earnestly praying that even more. The last lesson is this. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we must pray for our governing authorities that by God's wisdom, they will legislate such a cultural climate wherein the gospel can spread and the church flourish in peace. John Stott made this helpful observation in view of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. Stott wrote, It is the duty of the state to keep the peace, to protect its citizens from whatever would disturb it, to preserve law and order, and to punish evil and promote good, so that within such a stable society, the church may be free to worship God obey his laws, and spread his gospel. Conversely, it is the duty of the church to pray for the state 
so that its leaders may administer justice and pursue peace and to add to its intercession thanksgiving, especially for the blessings of good government as a gift of God's common grace. Do you notice in these three lessons, do you notice the principle application for us as the church in response to the state? It's not, it's, yeah, prayer. It's not marching on Capitol Hill. It's marching on our knees in prayer. That's the principal application. That's the principal application. God has ordained governing authorities, earthly rulers, and they have their place in this world. And separate from them, we as the church, as God's kingdom in this world, we have our place. And our place when it comes to earthly rulers is to pray down heaven, to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, to pray earnestly in behalf of these earthly rulers that we are under, that we are subject to, and if need be, if such rulers are wicked rulers, unrighteous rulers, then we should pray the Lord remove them. Because again, it is God who raises up kings. It is God who sets them and so this is our place. This is our position as the church in response to the state. We need to be earnestly in prayer for what is happening, for what is going on. Now, does that mean that Christians should not get out and vote? Well, no. We should be responsible citizens of our American society and appreciate those liberties that we have to do that very thing, to vote. And so, yeah, go vote. Do your duty as a good American citizen. But remember, you're first a Christian. You're first a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom. And so you know as a Christian that in the bigger picture, the one who is behind everything that is happening and the one who will save a nation is the Lord. It will not be in man. And so therefore, we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray. And with that, let's pray. Let's go to our Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you, Lord, that there's not a single earthly ruler in any part of this world who is exempt from your sovereign control, your sovereign purpose. We take great comfort in that, Lord, as your people living in this fallen world as we do. And especially, Lord, in our present and most immediate context right now in the United States 
It is so grievous, Father, for us to behold all that is going on in our federal government, especially with the things that continue happening in the Oval Office, in the office of the presidency. But Lord, we know that the man who serves in that office at this present moment is not there by chance. He's there, Lord, because you put him there. You appointed him. And by all appearances, blessed Father, we, we can't help but to wonder, is he there as your hand of judgment upon us as a nation? Father, whatever your purpose is in having such a man in the Oval Office at this present time, we just cry out to you tonight that you would have mercy upon our nation, that you would replace these godless, pagan rulers, these men and women who hate you, Lord, who hate the gospel, who would do anything and everything in their limited power to stifle the progress of your saving gospel spreading throughout this land in a fruitful and flourishing way. Heavenly Father, we humbly and earnestly ask you that you would mercifully mercifully give and provide for us as a nation those that would serve in the Senate and the Congress, those that would serve as judges, those who would serve in the cabinet of the office of the president and the one who would be president. Lord, we pray. Will you provide such who will rule by your wisdom who will govern justly, who will indeed fulfill, Lord, the purpose for why you have established and you have ordained earthly governments according to your word in Romans 13. We trust in you alone for this, Heavenly Father, because you alone have the power to carry this out. You are the true and only great sovereign over this entire universe. And so we look to you, Lord, for such mercy and kindness that it would please you to visit this nation of ours as you have visited this nation in times past. We pray these things for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name, amen.